You're listening to Randall Wallace Presents, formerly Bridging the Political Gap, the number one American history podcast of 2024 by Feedspot.com. Welcome to this Federal Society Practice Group webinar. Today we have lined up an all-star panel of legal experts to discuss revealing documents from the Watergate prosecutions, a special 50th anniversary symposium. My name is Nate Kazmarek, and I am Vice President and Director of the Practice Groups. As always, please note that all expressions of opinion are those of the speakers on today's webinar. We have a lot of interesting uh, material to cover today in a packed program, so I'll abbreviate our moderator's bio. Today, we are certainly pleased to have Judge Diamond to guide the discussion. Uh, since 2004, Judge Diamond has served as a district judge for the Eastern District of Pennsylvania. His law degree is from the University of Pennsylvania Law School. He previously served as a state prosecutor in Philadelphia from 1977 to 1979, and then again from 1981 to 1983. He is the author of the book Federal Grand Jury Practice and Procedure, Fifth Edition. <laughs> Welcome, I'm Randall Wallace, your host for Nixon and Watergate. This is our bonus shows that go with uh, as a companion to all three seasons of our Nixon and Watergate uh, podcast documentary. Uh, this, of course, just finishing our third season, which was 1974 to 1994, the fall and re-rise of Richard Nixon. These are bonus shows, and what they are is a symposium that was put together in September of 2022 by the Federalist Society, and they are a look at the Watergate, uh, the revealing documents of the Watergate prosecution, and it features some of the nation's top legal scholars, uh, two judges, and a professor, and of course, Jeff Shepard, who wrote the two books. Uh, he wrote three books, actually, but the two books, the, the, the Real Watergate Scandal and the Nixon Conspiracy, which is the most recent, and it was Mr. Shepard's work in documents that we were allowed to have access to, everything he had, to put together our three-season podcast documentary that you just listened to, and we hope you have enjoyed it. So with that, we thought we would share this with you. This is uh, it's going to be a, a four episodes, about 45 minutes apiece. However, if you would like to watch the symposium, you can do that on YouTube, and we will provide a YouTube link in our description that you can go to, and there you'll be able to see to see the participants and the documentation that they uh, that Jeff Shepard has provided and that they have provided um, on the screen. But with this being an audio, audio format, we hope you'll enjoy it and you'll and you'll be able to listen. The participants are uh, Professor Stephen Salzberg. The Wallace and Beverly Woodbury University Professor of Law. He's also the co-director of uh, of the Litigation and Dispute Resolution Program at the George Washington University Law School. Uh, the Honorable Lawrence Silberman, United States Circuit Judge, U.S. Court of Appeals for the D.C. Circuit, and we just did a show uh, before this honoring him, who because he passed away sadly about two weeks after this 
presentation was 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 shown. Uh, Jeff Shepard, the author of the Nixon conspiracy uh, and the real Watergate scandal, and our uh, moderator, the Honorable Paul S. Diamond, United States District Judge for the Eastern District of Pennsylvania. And with that, let's get right to it by the Federalist Society, the revealing look at the documents from the prosecution of Watergate. It will amaze you. Thank you, Judge Diamond, for joining us and for leading us. How are you today? Very well, thank you. Thank you for that very gracious introduction. Uh, I would like to introduce our panel uh, in alphabetical order. Our first uh, panelist uh, should be Ted Olson, who unfortunately uh, was unable to be here today. Uh, so I will move on to Professor Stephen Salzberg, a title professor at George w, uh, at, at GW Law School. Uh, uh, he's held a multitude of positions in the Department of Justice, uh, as well as the uh, I, he served uh, under the Iran Contra Special Prosecutor. Uh, he's a graduate of the University of Pennsylvania Law School, my alma mater. Uh, Jeff Shepard, uh, 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 who worked in the Nixon White House Counsel's Office after his graduation from Harvard Law School, uh, he really has created all of this. Uh, he has ferreted out through the Freedom of Information Act and great diligence the many uh, documents we will review today, which uh, I think you will find quite fascinating. And finally, uh, Judge uh, Lawrence Silverman, he's held a variety of, of high government posts. The two that bear most directly on our presentation today uh, are, uh, uh, he was a Deputy uh, Attorney General in the mid-1970s, and he has served on the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals since 1985. He has been described as a giant of the federal bench. Uh, I think he is the giant of the federal bench. Uh, with that, um, I will turn things over uh, to Jeff Shepard. Uh, uh, those of us of a certain age, uh, Watergate conjures up any number of things. Um, uh, it's hard to really uh, convey how the Watergate uh, crisis captured the American ma uh, imagination almost 50 years ago, really starting 50 years ago. But in 1973, a fair number of people in this country were glued to their television sets watching uh, uh, the Special Investigating Committee of the Senate, headed by then-Senator Irvin, uh, investigate Watergate. Um, uh, I think that it, has, it was then and continues to be uh, depicted as a morality tale of good, good versus evil, and uh, discussions tend to generate a good deal of heat, but not a good deal of light. I think that we hope to present things more in shades of gray, and we have the evidence to do it. Uh, and with that, I will turn over this uh, uh, matter to Jeff Shepard, who will give us a bit of background on Watergate. Thank you, Judge Diamond. Uh, I have been allocated up to 20 minutes by the panel to try to summarize the life and times of the Watergate scandal. Uh, and, and so here, here we go. We figure uh, about 85% of the viewers didn't live through it. Uh, so we're gonna try to summarize it so they can put these documents uh, in context. What we refer to as the unrest of the 1960s is really the 20 year period between 1960 and 1980 when President John Kennedy, Martin Luther King, and Senator Robert Kennedy were all assassinated. 
when there were major riots in some 19 cities, when prestigious colleges and universities were shut down by student protests, and when no president completed two full terms in office. Jack Kennedy was assassinated. Lyndon Johnson chose not to run for a second term. Richard Nixon resigned in disgrace. Jerry Ford was never elected president at all. And Jimmy Carter was defeated after one term by President Reagan. It may come as a surprise to many of our viewers, but there were no computers, no cell phones, and no internet. Quite simply, it was a different era. For Nixon's part, he had won a narrow election in 1968 by promising to end the Vietnam War, that was called Peace with Honor, and to restore law and order to a nation torn apart by dissent. He did both. There were 537,000 U.S. troops in Vietnam when Nixon took office. This number had declined to 250 when he ran for re-election in 1972. He had other foreign policy successes, including the opening to China, detente with the Soviet Union, and the reassertion of American influence in the Middle East, including saving Israel in the Yom Kippur War. Domestically, he'd founded the Environmental Protection Agency and passed the Clean Air and Clean Water Acts, peacefully desegregated the Southern schools, restored the rights of Native Americans, ended the draft, enacted the 18-year-old vote, and appointed four justices to the Supreme Court in his first term. He quadrupled the number of women serving in senior government positions, launched the war on cancer, and broke the heroin epidemic that had been ravishing the nation's inner cities. His 1972 opponent was Senator George McGovern of South Dakota. He ran as a progressive. He promised to raise taxes. His campaign was attacked as being in favor of acid, amnesty, and abortion. Acid was the scourge of psychedelic drugs, LSD in particular, affecting America's college youth. Harvard professor Timothy Leary had famously urged his students to tune in, turn on, and drop out. Amnesty was forgiveness for all of the draft dodgers, deserters, and miscreants who had so vigorously opposed the Vietnam War. And there were tens of thousands of them, left over from the most unpopular war in American history. But they wanted more than forgiveness. They wanted reassurance that they had been right all along. And George McGovern was happy to oblige. Abortion was roughly the same issue as we find ourselves in today, an intense state-by-state -state legislative battle because Roe v. Wade had not yet been decided by the Supreme Court. The 72 election turned into being a wipeout. Nixon ran up the greatest electoral landslide in our nation's history, winning 61% of the vote, and taking every state except Massachusetts and the District of Columbia. It was heady times for his supporters. 22 months later, Nixon resigned in disgrace, and two dozen members of his administration were convicted and imprisoned in the greatest political scandal of the 20th century. Now, Watergate had burst into public view 
on June 17, 1972, when five burglars were caught red-handed in the Watergate offices of the Democratic National Committee. They had cameras, bugging devices. One of them worked for the President's Re-Election Committee. Others had phone numbers and uncirculated $100 bills traceable to the Nixon White House. The seeds of the scandal, however, have been planted the year before. The Pentagon Papers, a secret 48-volume study by the Defense Department of how we had gotten into the Vietnam War in the first place, was leaked to the New York Times, the Washington Post, and other major newspapers by anti-war activist Daniel Ellsberg. It was considered the biggest national security leak since the beginning of the Cold War. President Nixon authorized creation of a special investigations unit within the White House itself. It was nicknamed the Plumbers because their job was to stop leaks. The problem with Ellsberg was that as a consultant to the Rand Corporation, a defense think tank in Santa Monica, he had access to 54,000 other classified documents. The plumbers decided to have a secret look at any Ellsberg files kept by his psychiatrist, Dr. Lewis Fielding. Their illicit entry over Labor Day weekend in 1971 was planned by the two top plumbers, Gordon Liddy and Howard Hunt, was conducted by several Cuban-Americans, and it was authorized by presidential assistant John Ehrlichman himself. Now, in and of itself, the fielding break-in was not connected to Watergate. But that very same team, Cuban-Americans directed by Lydian Hunt, conducted the later Watergate break-in 10 months later, except this time they got caught. So, there really was a break-in. There really was a cover-up. The issue, then and now, is who else knew. As Senator Baker so famously put it, what did the president know and when did he know it? Now, Barom, if you'll go to the next slide, we'll see six major players. Make sure that comes up. Okay. The top row are Nixon's most senior staff members. They were heavily involved in his 68 campaign and in his first term. John Mitchell is Nixon's former law partner. He headed the 68 campaign and then became Nixon's attorney general. He left the department in 1972 to head up Nixon's re-election efforts. Bob Haldeman in the middle was an advertising executive. He'd been with Nixon since the 1950s and he'd become Nixon's chief of staff. John Ehrlichman was Bob Haldeman's classmate at UCLA. He was Nixon's first counsel, and then he headed his domestic affairs unit, where he was my boss. In the bottom row are the actual crooks, the mid-level soldiers who got their hands dirty in the break-in or in the cover-up. Interestingly, they had not been active in the 68 campaign, but they sure were in the second one. Gordon Liddy was a former FBI agent. Remember, he'd masterminded the plumber's break-in, and he masterminded the Watergate break-in. Jeb Magruder was a public relations staff member 
who'd been sent early to the re-election committee to get things running while they waited for John Mitchell to arrive from the Department of Justice. John Dean was Ehrlichman's successor as Nixon's counsel. He ended up running the cover-up and was described by the FBI as Watergate's master manipulator. All these people have passed away, except John Dean. All of the people wrote books about their Watergate experiences, except John Mitchell. But James Rosen did a wonderful biography of of Mitchell uh, and Watergate called The Strongman. Now, how did it all start? How did Watergate all start? Well, it started when Bob Haldeman asked John Dean to take the lead in preparing a perfectly legitimate campaign intelligence plan. This might today be called opposition research, and every campaign has one. You want to know all about your opponents, their positions on public issues, their sources and uses of campaign funds, their schedules, and especially any dirt in their background. You might even have one of your people volunteer on their campaign to gather dirt from the inside. Unfortunately, in our case, John Dean recruited Gordon Liddy for this task, promising him at least $500,000 for his initiatives. And Liddy got carried away. He prepared a plan that included many overtly criminal acts. It was called Gemstone, and it's lovingly described in his autobiography. There's no doubt what he proposed. It included specific proposals for mugging, bugging, kidnapping, and prostitution. When Liddy showed up at the re-election committee and informed Jeb Magruder that he needed about a million dollars for the plan, Magruder said the only one with the authority to approve a commitment of that magnitude was John Mitchell, and he was still attorney general. So these three folks in the bottom row trooped over to the Department of Justice and met with John Mitchell in his attorney general's office, where Liddy laid out his plan on charts prepared by the CIA. Now, Mitchell knew nothing about this initiative beforehand, but all three presenters came from the Nixon White House. A budget for Liddy's plan was not formally approved at this first meeting, but later, after the break-in arrests, everyone who'd been there or otherwise knew about aspects of Liddy's plan was very aware of their own potential exposure to prosecution, hence the cover-up. How did it come out? Well, for the top row, all three were convicted of obstruction of justice, conspiracy, and perjury in a three-month cover-up trial, each sentenced to a prison term of two and a half to eight years, and each served roughly 18 months. For the bottom row, Liddy adopted the Code of Omerta, complete silence. He would say to no one, not a grand jury, not a congressional committee, not the prosecutors. He became known as the Iron Man of Watergate, but he paid for it. He served over five years in jail for his many crimes until his sentence was commuted by Jimmy Carter to be no longer than seven years. Magruder was the weak read in the cover-up, 
and the first to reach a plea bargain with career prosecutors. He pled to a single felony. He served six months of a 10 to four, 10 month to four year sentence. John Dean failed in his own attempts to get immunity from the career prosecutors, but he did get it from the Senate Irvin Committee, who then portrayed him as an innocent whistleblower. And as Judge Diamond alluded, most Americans who know anything about Watergate got their knowledge from the televised hearings of the Irvin Committee, because federal trials aren't televised. So it's all Irvin Committee, really all the time. Everybody watched. He became, John Dean became the government's chief witness against his former colleagues in the cover-up trial. He was sentenced to a prison term of one to four years with commitment beginning the scheduled opening of the trial itself. But that was just for show, designed to enhance his credibility as a government witness. In fact, he was set completely free following the trial's conclusion. And thus he was only confined for four months, and that was on an army base. In truth, John Dean never spent a single night in an actual jail cell. Now let's go to the next slide. Let's have a look at the critical dates for the Watergate cover-up. Jeff, first up at the top, you have Liddy's intelligence plan reviewed. This is in the Attorney General's presence on January 27th and then again on February 4th. And then uh, uh, by uh, Jeb Magruder and John Mitchell on March 30th when allegedly the plan was approved. There were two actual break-ins into the DNC. The May 28th break-in was successful on planted bugging devices, but one of them didn't work, so they went back in on June 17th, and that's when they were caught. Now, today, the day of this panel, is September 15th. That makes it exactly 50 years from the burglary indictments that were handed down on September 15th, 1972. The trial itself, and it was seven people, uh, concluded on January 30th, 1973, and it was four Cubans and three officials of the Committee to Re-elect a President, Gordon Liddy, Howard Hunt, and James McCord. McCord is a very strange figure. He doesn't figure prominently in today's presentation, uh, but he was a, a, a career CIA officer and was a wiretap expert. And Liddy had shanghaied him into coming and helping them with their wiretaps. Shortly after the Watergate convictions of the burglars, the Senate created a Watergate committee headed by Senator Sam Irvin of North Carolina. Most people, as I said, their knowledge of Watergate comes from the televised hearings. Uh, as sometimes happens, very rarely, but sometimes happens, the Irvin Committee had no overt uh, advocates of, of Richard Nixon. So they were very smooth hearings that weren't strongly contested. And it seemed like everybody was, was uh, piling on Nixon. It's a biased point of view, of course, for me. The cover-up itself collapsed. I'm on the bottom row now of the slide. The cover-up collapsed on sentencing day, March 23rd, from the burglary convictions, 
uh, uh, James McCord wrote a letter to Judge Sirica and said, there's been a cover-up. People have perjured themselves. You don't know what's been going on. Uh, it caused quite a hullabaloo. Uh, people started, who, who had guilty knowledge, started uh, seeking out the prosecutors uh, and revealing what had been going on. Uh, Nixon acted on uh, uh, April 30th, the fired his two top aides and John Dean and, and uh, appointed a new attorney general with the permission to establish a special prosecutor who was appointed on May 25th. Now, as you can see from the dates, we jump about a year here, but we're doing that because in July of 1973, Alex Butterfield revealed there had been a taping system in the Oval Office and lots and lots of the president's conversations were on tape. And that led to about a year's legal battle over the tapes themselves. Uh, Nixon's uh, defense collapsed. He resigned on August 9th, first and only president to resign from office in, in a scandal. He was pardoned by Jerry Ford on September 9th. And then shortly thereafter, in October, the three-month cover-up trial began of seven individuals, uh, including Mitchell and Haldeman and Ehrlichman. Uh, and that concluded on January 1st, 1975. And their matters stood for 40 years. But then something began to happen. And that's what brings us to today. Uh, it turned out that uh, uh, four batches of documents, of internal prosecution documents, began to surface beginning in 2013. Special Prosecutor Leon Jaworski had taken his confidential Watergate files with him when returning to Texas at the beginning of the cover-up trial. These included grand jury transcripts. They surfaced at his law school alma mater, Bay Baylor Law School in Waco, Texas, in 2013. They were retrieved by our National Archives. They were government documents, and I was the first person to examine them. Associate Special Prosecutor James Vorenberg, Cox's top uh, associate and his first hire, took his files with him when going back to Harvard. And they first surfaced in 2015. Now, these were mainly his extensive notes from staff meetings and other events in preparation for writing the prosecutor's final report, which Vorenberg authored and came out in October of 1975. Again, I was the first person to gain access to these notes. Counsel to the special prosecutor, Philip Lacavara, who described his position as number two and a half in the office, took his files when he resigned. He resigned in advance of the cover-up prosecutions, and he didn't return them to archives until 2020, just two years ago. Once again, I was the first to get to go through them. Finally, the prosecutor's secret report, nicknamed the Roadmap, we'll get to it in, in this program, was the basis for the grand jury naming Nixon a co-conspirator and for the grand for the House Judiciary Committee recommending his impeachment. That remained sealed until 2018 
when it was finally released in response to my court petition. Now, I contend these documents undermine everything we've been told about the Watergate scandal, and they raise serious questions as to whether, in a time of intense political upheaval, the defendants received anything like the fair trial guaranteed by the Fifth and Sixth Amendments to our Constitution. Now, if we go to the next slide, I have a triangle. Oop. This is so Jeff. Jeff, can I interrupt? You I'm, go I'm right ahead. For interrupting. No, you go right ahead. I just have one last final reminder and announcement for our audience, just for those who are interested in CLE. The instructions are on the slide or on the screen presently. A reminder that if you need to sign in to for CLE, that is available in the chat section. And lastly, if the audience, audience members, as we go along, if questions arise in your mind that you'd like to ask our panel, please put them in the, Q, the question and answer section, the Q&A section at the bottom, and we will endeavor to answer at the end of the program all of your questions. Uh, with that, uh, I will get out of the way and turn it back to you, Jeff. All right, we're, right. We're going to my triangle slide. This is my attempt to illustrate what I believe the documents show. Secret meetings, secret memos, secret coordination between all three branches of government. At the top, you have the executive branch. Uh, there are indications, written indications, that Special Prosecutor Archibald Cox, Special Prosecutor Leon Jaworski, and various Watergate Special Prosecution Force attorneys met secretly with the judges and met secretly with members of Congress and their staffs. Down on the lower left side, the legislative branch, and there were three active committees, Senate Judiciary, the Senate Urban Committee, and House Judiciary, and they met with the special prosecutors, and on rare occasion, they met with the judges. And over on the right side, you see the three judges involved in the ex parte meetings that we're going to discuss. Chief D.C. Circuit Judge David Bazelon, Chief District Judge John Sirica, and Federal District Judge Gerhard Gazelle. Now, before we go to the next slide, I want to finish up and I'm going to turn it back over to uh, uh, Judge Diamond. Most Americans agree, at least we hope they agree, that no matter how despicable the defendants or how egregious their crimes, they deserve a fair trial. Only then can we hang them. This is what we mean by the rule of law. Our issue this afternoon is whether the documents I've uncovered, now publicly available at our National Archives, show others. And we're going to go into four areas, the ex parte meetings, the efforts to remove Judge Sirica, the apparent suppression of exculpatory evidence, the apparently partisan considerations in the choice of those who got indicted. I will summarize the document, turn the discussion over to Judge Diamond and the panel. Well, one quick warning, we've realized there's too much material to cover in a single three-hour session, so we're dividing it in half. Today's focus will be on issues connected with the cover-up trial. A second part, issues connected with Nixon's impeachment, we hope to cover at a subsequent date that's yet to be determined. First section to our panel is a series of ex parte meetings. And if you'll, uh, Barm, if you'll come up with the next uh, slide. Excuse me, Jeff. Yes, sir. 
Don't you think you want to mention at this point the Saturday Night Massacre? Uh, and therefore the transition from Cox to Jaworski? I'd be happy to, Judge. Uh, Archibald Cox was a special prosecutor for six months uh, uh, and hired all of the Watergate special prosecution staff. Uh, in the controversially over the tapes, uh, they Nixon didn't want to turn the tapes over to anybody, but there was a proposed compromise uh, uh, and it was called third party authentication. It was actually Cox's idea uh, in the beginning. And what the White House suggested was they have the tapes listened, prepare a transcript, have the tapes listened to uh, uh, by an expert, uh, a third party authenticator. And then those transcripts, once authenticated, could be turned over to the special prosecutor in the grand jury. You should, shows, explain, you should explain what the tapes were. Well, these are the White House tapes that uh, were put in in Nixon's office uh, in February of 1971 and taped about two years of his private conversations. It was an automatic system. So if he was in the office or in his hideaway office in the old DOB uh, and there was sound, the system picked it up. Uh, the tapes are are many times uh, difficult to transcribe because they're not of high audio quality. Uh, uh, and the prosecutor wanted the tapes. Nixon didn't want to turn over anything, but toward the end offered uh, authenticated transcripts. Uh, mm -hmm. Nixon believed, fairly or unfairly, that Elliot Richardson, his attorney general, was prepared to fire Archibald Cox if Cox didn't go along with his own idea of third-party authentication. But when push came to shove and, and Cox said, not good enough, I want the tapes or nothing, Elliot Richardson decided it would be better for his own political future to resign instead of firing Cox. So uh, uh, Nixon ordered uh, uh, the next person in line, the deputy attorney general, to fire Cox. He he declined and he was fired. And then Bob Bork, who was solicitor general, agreed to fire Archie Cox. And that rigmarole occurring Friday evening, October 20th, is called the Saturday Night Massacre. And it ended up in a huge uh, firestorm. It was characterized by Nixon's new chief of staff as a firestorm of protest, uh, and the Nixon people folded, agreed to appoint a successor special prosecutor uh, to take Archibald Cox's place, who turned out to be Leon Jaworski. So you had Archibald Cox and Attorney General Elliot Richardson uh, for the first six months. Then you had uh, acting Attorney General Robert Bork and Leon Jaworski until Senator William Saxby of Ohio was confirmed as the new attorney general. And Judge Larry Silberman was confirmed as the deputy attorney general and was attorney general from January of 1974 uh, into the Ford administration until April of 1976. 
when he became ambassador to Yugoslavia. Uh, Larry, is that complete? Fine. I just wanted you to explain the transition from Cox to Jaworski. Very, very fair. Very fair. It, it's Watergate is two and a half years uh, and very complex. And I tried to summarize, but I I skipped many significant events. So what is today is fifty years from the burglar break-in. We're going to fast forward almost two years to March 1st, which was the indictments for the the indictments for the uh, uh, cover-up trial. We're going to skip this slide. Okay, let's go. Let's proceed. Uh, Why don't you let me just just read the... uh, Yeah, go ahead and read it. It's 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 just Uh, a paragraph. There, there it is. Rum's got it up. Well, okay. uh, go ahead, go ahead, uh, Paul. The chief judge of the D.C. District Court was John Sirica, uh, who assigned the Watergate cases to himself. And uh, the lawyer representing H.R. Uh, uh, Halderman, uh, and again, I, I, I can't emphasize enough the, the currency these people had in American culture at the time, Haldeman, Ehrlichman, Dean, Archibald Cox, and so forth. Uh, uh, but Haldeman's lawyer wrote this letter uh, uh, to Chief Judge Sirica. Uh, Would you be willing to inform us whether you were contacted or whether you conferred with the prosecutors, the grand jury, or the foreman, or any or other member thereof regarding the report which the grand jury presented to you in open court on March 1st, 1974. we all practiced the law at one time, and I think it, we, this is a fairly stunning letter for a, a lawyer who would be appearing before a judge to send to the judge. Did you have improper meetings, ex parte meetings, with the with the government? And um, we're going to spend a fair amount of time giving you what the answer might have been. He never got an answer. Uh, but Mr. Wilson never got an answer to this letter. But uh, before we go to the documents that Jeff has uncovered, I'm going to ask uh, uh, Professor Salzberg to go through very quickly the uh, ethics strictures that apply at the time regarding judicial ex parte communications and lawyer ex parte communications. Professor Salzberg. Do you want to um, go to the next slide there? So this one's this one in uh, in the 1970s said in an adversary proceeding, a lawyer shall not communicate or cause another to communicate as to the merits of the cause with the judge or an official before whom the proceeding is pending. This is basically no ex parte contacts in any adversary proceeding. And basically, we all understood this. I mean, from from. The day you graduated law school, you understood that in an adversary proceeding, the adversaries were supposed to be in court and to have an equal opportunity to speak to the judge or a jury in a jury case. There wasn't to be any advantage sought by having a private conversation with the judge that related to the merits of the case that was before that judge. Next slide. And this is the flip. 
except as authorized by law, the judge shall neither initiate nor consider ex parte or other communications concerning a pending or impending proceeding. I say it's the flip side because it's just as improper for a judge to seek out one lawyer in a proceeding um, for a private conversation. That's as compromising as if the lawyer sought out the judge. And I would, I bet, I mean, I've been a lawyer for 50 years now. I don't think I've ever had an ex parte conversation with a judge about a matter that was pending before that judge. I mean, we've had conversations with judges about other things. We all, many of us have. But this is something that most judges maybe all take very seriously. For example, I served on a, the advisory committee in the Federal Rules of Criminal Procedure with a federal judge. I don't need to name it. And he had a tough evidence question and he called me. I wasn't a party called me to talk over the evidence question. We talked, and then he went on the record in the case. And he just said to the lawyers, I've just had a conversation with Professor Salzberg. I asked him this question. This is what he said to me. He said, and here's his number. You can call him if you want to check. I mean, that was, the, he didn't have to do that. I wasn't a party. I wasn't even in, in the case. It was kind of like he'd, he'd opened a book, only he didn't have the book. So he called, but he wanted to be clear that, the lawyers had a fair opportunity to deal with me um, and what I said. Uh, and that's, that is what I think is at the, the heart of the rule of law, equal access to um, judges, equal access to juries. And I, I would guess, Judge Diamond and Judge Silverman, that in all the years you've been either lawyer or judge, you probably had no ex parte communications. I don't ever recall one. No, I've never had ex parte communications. The only exception to that is when I conduct settlement conferences with the in civil cases with the agreement of both sides, I will meet with each side to try to negotiate a settlement. In criminal cases, absolutely not. Uh, there's no provision for it. And in my opinion, uh, any conviction that has at its foundation ex parte communications with me would be an invalid conviction. It's a very, very serious matter. It is a very, very serious violation of due process, in my view, uh, to have ex parte communications uh, with either side. And I'll talk about a criminal case now uh, about the merits of the case that it will be or is proceeding before me. And with that, why don't we go to when we're taking them slightly out of chronological order, because for the narrative, it makes a little more sense to the next document, if you will, Brom. Uh, and this is the this is the uh, precious metal that Jeff Shepard uh, has really, with a pickaxe, dug out of the side of a mountain through through his FOIA efforts and his various uh, uh, petitions. Uh, I believe it's all to the D.C. District Court. Uh, uh, Jeff, could you summarize this document, please? Surely, this is a memo from Phil Lacavara, uh, 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 counsel to the special prosecutor to uh, Richard Benvenisti, who is head of the Watergate Task Force, and it describes an ex parte, ex parte meeting he had that morning, this is the morning of January 2nd, with Judge Sirica. Uh, he was notified the night before. Uh, I received a phone call at home from Todd Christofferson, a law clerk to Sirica, uh, and then in, in the meeting itself, Sirica asked whether they knew anything that would indicate Earl Silbert uh, would be the source of any leaks. Now, Sir Rick had been to a party on New Year's Eve with his former law firm. He heard a rumor. 
The rumor was there were leaks out of the grand jury. The rumor was wrong. The leaks were coming out of the uh, Senate Urban Committee, which leaked like a sieve. Silbert had nothing to do with the Urban Committee, and the object of the leak had nothing to do with the grand jury. But that wasn't known at this part. Go to the next page. Next slide. Uh, and here, uh, uh, Lockevar is saying, we told the judge we didn't think there was any basis. And then the judge said he just got a call from Sam Dash. Sam Dash is majority counsel of the Urban Committee. Judge told me he had indicated Dash, a good friend, what he told us about this rumor. And then the end of the memo, Judge Sirica indicated to me since both the committee and we had cleared Silber, he would proceed to swear him in as interim United States attorney as scheduled. Now, Sirica had just been named man of the year by Time magazine. So he was really feeling his oats. What he's done is appoint himself to check out these rumors. He heard it apart. Judge Diamond, what do you think? Uh, well, first of all, uh, um, I'd like to draw attention to the very first line. Uh, at, and this is uh, Mr. Lacovara has written at approximately 10 p.m. on Tuesday, January 1st, 1974. I received a telephone call at my home from the law clerk to Judge Sirica, who then proceeds to communicate with Mr. Lacovara uh, on Judge Sirica's behalf. Uh, I don't believe that um, anyone in the U.S. Attorney's Office here in Philadelphia has my home number and would call me at 10 o'clock at night uh, 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 on New Year's Day uh, to discuss anything. Uh, it suggests to me, and I'm going to ask uh, Judge Silberman and Professor Salzberg what they think, but it suggests to me uh, this was not the first communication uh, of this nature because it's a tenant. It's a tenant night. It appears to me, if you put it in context, there had to be communications before that. What do you think, Professor Salzberg? I think that's highly likely. Um, the, the and the other thing is one. You don't get a call like that out of the blue. Um, it, 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 aside from the home phone number, it's there doesn't seem to be any surprise, right, in this letter. It wasn't like I was really surprised, I was shocked. No, this seemed to be the normal course of events for what was unfolding between Judge Sirica and the special prosecutors. I Judge agree with that conclusion. Uh, now, I, I, uh, the exact uh, uh, processes that were in place at the time are a bit hazy, but I'm assuming that, as is the case today, when a Senate-confirmed U.S. attorney steps down, the DOJ names some interim person until the president names a new U.S. attorney who is confirmed by the Senate. I'm sorry, and I, think, I, th I think it's actually the court that does that. I thought the court swore him in. Uh, today, I know the, the DOJ names him. But in any event, before Sirica was going to do anything, he wanted to uh, uh, have Silbert, uh, who just passed away, and uh, Professor Salzberg informed, uh, informed us a little earlier that uh, his uh, obituary is in the Washington Post today. Uh, he wanted to make sure uh, Silbert was kosher, if you will. And but it's interesting that uh, and I would like our panelists to weigh in a bit on this. The people he asks for advice 
are the uh, counsel to the Watergate special prosecutor and uh, uh, counsel to the Irvin committee. How does that strike you, uh, Judge Silberman? Inappropriate. Professor Salzberg. I, I'm glad you emphasized that. We, we haven't mentioned Sam Dash earlier. Um, Sam Dash was a Georgetown professor who became counsel to the Watergate committee. He was a very important player, I think, in the investigation of President Nixon. And it's inc- it is incredible when you think about it, that in this memo, he's reporting that Judge Sirica is calling both the Watergate prosecutors and the counsel to the Senate committee in order to get their opinions on um, what he should what he should do as a judge when it comes to swearing in the next acting United States attorney. It's, it's incredible. I'd, I'd like to add a, a couple of additional facts to what Professor Salzberg has said. Uh, Sam Dash taught at Georgetown and uh, uh, Judge Sirica uh, did a course at Georgetown. So they knew each other. Uh, uh, in Sam Dash's book, he describes another ex parte meeting he had with Sirica to urge a particular approach to sentencing. Uh, Sam Irvin's top personal assistant was a gentleman named Rufus Edmiston, who uh, is now in uh, Raleigh, North Carolina. And uh, Mr. Edmiston has said uh, recently that Sam Dash went down to see Judge Sirica all the time. That, that Dash invited Edmondson to go with him, and he said, you know, we shouldn't be doing this. Uh, this is not proper. So he didn't go. But is it, this contact between Sirica and Dash was not a one-off event. It was with some frequency. And to, to again, give some historic context, uh, Sam Dash's Republican analog, chief counsel for the Republican side of the Irvin Committee, was Fred Thompson. Uh, that was when Fred Thompson first appeared on the screen, not at the Hunt for Red October or one of the other movies, uh, or when he became senator from Tennessee. It was when he was Republican counsel, uh, uh, and Sam Dash especially uh, became a public figure. Everybody, everybody knew anybody who appeared on TV all the time in this Watergate, uh, these wa- televised Watergate hearings. Uh, they were at least as ubiquitous as the O.J. Simpson uh, trial uh, uh, when it was televised, perhaps more so. Uh, and um, Dash was a celebrity, and uh, that's who uh, it appears Judge Sirica went to for advice on whether or not someone who's about to be sworn in as acting U.S. attorney is leaking grand jury material. Uh, One gets the impression from this that Judge Sirica regarded his actions regarding the grand jury as a corollary of the impeachment proceeding. It was an oper- two branches of an operation directed at the president. And That's the book- looks like they were cooperating. That seems exactly right to me, Judge Silberman. And I think we're going to find more evidence of that as we go forward. Uh, but it's uh, it appears to be uh, 
two branches of government cooperating against the third, uh, uh, the judicial and the legislative cooperating against the executive. Thank you for listening to Bridging the Political Gap. If you've liked what you've heard, please share it. And we would love to hear from you and your thoughts on on our show. So if you'd like to, please leave a review wherever you get your podcast. And until next time, thanks again and so long for now.